At a local bar in Mesa, Arizona, patrons overhear some disturbing comments coming from a man nearby. It's September 15th, 2001, four days after 9-11. Two planes have crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. There have been a series of terrorist attacks in the United States. Pictures just in showed the building already on fire with smoke billowing from the upper floors. We have no details on why the planes hit the building, nor so far of any deaths or injuries. Like so many people across the US, this man is angry and upset about the thousands of people who lost their lives in the terrorist attack days before. But this man's anger is also violent. As he drinks his beer, he rants about Muslims, saying that he wants to kill quote-unquote Middle Eastern people. He makes similar comments multiple times and grows increasingly intoxicated. Eventually, he's kicked out, likely because of his violent commentary. But what the bar patrons don't realize is that his comments are more than just empty threats. Within a few hours, this man, 42-year-old Frank Silva Roque, is arrested for first-degree murder. His victim, the South Asian owner of a local gas station, shot five times and dead at the scene. This would be the first fatal hate crime in post 9-11 America. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Hate, a weekly true crime podcast in which Asad and I attempt to uncover the ugly truths behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. I am your co-host, Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. Um, that's right, Sadia. So many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal, as always, is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and the complexities of these unfortunate situations whether or not they can be considered hate crimes. While incidences such as this one that we're about to talk about are really important to discuss, they can also be really challenging to listen to. So above all, we just want to make sure that you are all taking care of yourself and your mental health. Before we get started, Sadia, how was your week? I said the last couple of weeks have been tough for a lot of us. But before we delve into today's case, I do want to draw listeners' attention to something that happened recently. A suburban Chicago landlord, 71-year-old, stabbed a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy, Vada Al-Fayoum, because of the kid's Palestinian identity. And I do want to address our listeners here. I know a lot of us are angry. We are reacting to things in ways that we wouldn't normally. But here's the thing. Words matter. Harmful, dehumanizing words lead to violence. So please use words carefully to recognize the humanity in people who don't look like you. Recognizing all humanity is extremely, extremely important. And we talk about this a lot on our podcast. And the way I see it, 
fighting for justice and equality transcends allegiances. And I know, as I said previously, everybody is angry. But amidst the anger, let's preserve our collective humanity. And if you can, listeners, research with curiosity. Approach history openly and extend compassion to everyone in pain. Right now, Muslims are suffering as much as the Jewish community. We are being targeted abroad and we are being targeted at home. And we don't feel safe in our homes, in our societies. And it's a terrible, terrible feeling to have. We do this podcast to shine light on, you know, the crimes that are being committed against the minority communities. And I think this one that we just talked about is a perfect example of a direct result of the stakes being raised, you know, in the media and in our communities, right? Like this crime likely would not have happened had it not been for tempers being flared across the world. And and so, you know, I think that it's just sad for me, you know, like I, like you was really upset when I saw that story. I mean, it's one of <laughs> hundreds of stories that right. we've seen in the last couple of weeks that have made us upset. And I think you said it right, Sadi. I think, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot is just, yeah, leading with empathy and realizing that the suffering and murder of anybody is just unjustified and not needed, right? Exactly. And I said, this case is so relevant, although it happened almost 22 years ago, it makes a lot more sense for us to share it now because it shows the impact that words, that stories, narratives around certain communities can have on people. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So should we get started then? Yeah. So with that, let's get started on today's case. Frank Silva Roque is a 42-year-old white man, an aircraft mechanic living and working nearby. On September 11, 2001, Frank is at work. News of the Twin Towers shocks and distresses him, as it does for millions of other people across the country. But Frank's emotional distress soon turns aggressive. He goes to a local restaurant later that same day, and here he allegedly says he's going to, quote, go out and shoot some towel heads, unquote. Yeah, Frank's disturbing commentary only gets worse as the days go on. The next day, which is Wednesday, September 12th, Frank doesn't go to work. One of his co-workers apparently calls him that day to check on him. But then Frank tells his co-workers something truly concerning. According to a Huffington Post article from 2012, Frank says, and I quote, We should round them all up and kill them. We should kill their children too, because they'll grow up to be like their parents. Unquote. I, I mean, Savia, we're seeing this language again today. You, you called it 
you know, like this is history repeating itself and it seems to be repeating itself every couple of years, if not more. It's so sad. You know, you mentioned this term that Frank had used, which is quote unquote towel heads. And, you know, for those that don't know, this is a derogative term used for South and Southwest Asian folks in general, and that includes Muslims, but it basically includes their religious and ethnic identities. And, you know, it's just like, Sathya, that comment is just crazy for him to say that he wants to kill children too. Yeah. Like, who who says that? A lot of people have said Sathya. As I say that, I'm like, oh, I you you hear people saying that in the news, you know, in the last couple of weeks a lot. It's just, it's really just, you know, extra. And yeah. And I said, what's ironic is that Frank has children of his own, by the way, two daughters. And yet he still openly makes these types of comments about mm. kids who, in my mind, are always innocent, right? Yep. Frank repeats a lot of the same awful things in his home. Things like, quote, all Arabs should be shot, unquote. His wife responds by taking the box of guns and ammunition that they had in their home and hiding this box in the trunk of their car. Oh, good for her. Yeah, but in the car, really, isn't that more accessible to him? Yeah, I mean, uh, who, who knows? But I mean, at least she was, you know, trying to respond in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it's the best hiding spot, but at least yeah. his wife doesn't agree with or encourage his threats. But at the same time, it means she already believes that her husband is capable of acting on his threat. Good point. Yeah, good point. And now we are coming up on September 15th. Mm, the day of the murder, right? Yeah, unfortunately, that's right, Asad. If you remember from the intro, Frank goes to a local bar in Mesa, Arizona on September 15th. While he's drinking, he's saying much of the same hateful stuff he's been saying for days now, threatening to kill Middle Eastern people. He's also slightly intoxicated. And if we've learned anything from our episodes it's that alcohol always makes these types of situations worse eventually the bartender kicks frank out but before he leaves frank says that he's going to do quote unquote something soon and that everyone quote might read about it in the newspaper and sure enough frank gets in his car and drives off after driving for a bit he spots two men outside of a gas station. These two men, as we know now, are Balbir and his landscaper. But when Frank looks at Balbir, he does not see an innocent man with a family. To him, Balbir is just another brown man with a turban. And so, from his car, Frank points a handgun out the window, aims, and shoots Balbir five times. He's dead within seconds, and Frank speeds away. Oh my God, so this is just awful. And again, like, it just happened so quickly, right? Obviously he was thinking about this for a while and hunting down, trying to find someone, but the fact that Balbir is dead within seconds, you know, like, Oh, unbelievable. And all because of the way that he looked, right? And right. just happened to be 
standing outside the gas station, right? Like just so ridiculous. So where does Frank go from there? So unfortunately, I said Frank doesn't stop there. After leaving Palbir dead, Frank shoots at two other victims. One is a Lebanese man at another gas station. The other is a family from Afghanistan. Oh my God, just going on a shooting spree. Yeah, of course. Exactly. But the good news is, if you can even have good news in a situation like this, neither the Lebanese man nor the Afghan family are killed. In fact, I'm not sure if they are even injured, at least not physically. Sources aren't too clear about that. Yeah, I mean, that's really great news that these weren't fatal. And, you know, it's <laughs> it's shocking, Sadia, that this is something that I've just never heard about either, right? And mm. it's also just not not surprising that it, it did happen, that someone would, A, kill someone and then continue on to try to hunt down other people as well. But yeah, altogether, though, I'm sure it's, you know, traumatizing for everybody that was involved. You're right, Asad. And speaking of the family from Afghanistan, though, they were apparently living at a home that Frank owned and then sold to them at some point, at least according to one source, which is so bizarre. Oh, my God. So you said that Frank knew where to go to find and shoot at the Afghan family. If that's true... I guess that makes me wonder if he knew where he was going when he killed Balbir, too. Like, you know, maybe he knew that someone that, you know, was wearing a turban was running the gas station, right? It was owned by a brown person or whatever. Was it by chance or was it an actual targeted killing is a uh, is question I have. So honestly, Asad, sources don't give us much information here. But I'll say that Mesa, Arizona, where this story really takes place, is pretty big. The population was over 400,000 people in 2001, which makes it less likely that Frank knew of Palbir or if he had met Palbir before. I mean, it's possible, but I think I'm leaning toward it being a chance encounter. Frank was just driving by, intoxicated, already angry, and probably looking for someone to harm based on his commentary. For sure. Then he happened to see a brown man at a gas station who fit his perception of his so-called towel head and killed him. Yeah. I mean, I think I don't disagree with that. I think that is probably what happened. And it's. I guess it's sad either way, you know, whether or not he targeted Belvier or because he knew that he was working there or if it was a, you know, random shooting. It's still... Outrageous, egregious, and, and so much. Sadia, let's take a quick break and we come back. I want to know more about who Balbir Singh Sodhi was. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, we were talking about Balbir Singh Sodhi. Can you tell me a little bit about him um, before we continue on the case? Absolutely. So in September 2001, Balbir Singh Sodhi was 49 years old and living in Mesa, Arizona. He'd been living in America for over 10 years now, but he was originally from a small village in northern India. Balbir and his family are Sikhs. Now Sikhi or Sikhism is a religion originating from northern India but in the mid to late 80s, India was a tumultuous time for sex. 
thousands of Sikhs were being killed and beaten during a period of political unrest. Oh, I had no clue. Yeah, so in the late 80s, Balbir and a handful of his brothers immigrated to the U.S. And for the years that follow, Balbir made a life for himself in the States. He was married with five children. He owned a local gas station. And he often sent money to his family back in India. Speaking of sending money back home, Balbir seemed to be a very generous, considerate man, Asad. A CNN article writes that Balbir used to give free candy to children at the gas station. Oh, that's nice, sweet. And for customers who couldn't afford gas, he would let them fill their tanks for free. Wow, that's who great. Who does that? Yeah, who does that? That's amazing. And get this, Asad, on September 11th, he was so upset after the attack that he donated what he could to the families of the victims. I think in that sense, he really felt like he was part of the American community, right? Like if, if he was feeling this upset about it. So that's really, that's, that's great to hear. As we know, the days following the 9-11 attacks were filled with an uptick in anti-Muslim sentiment. Take a listen to this news clipping. At one point, a guidance counselor said to my face, we don't, we don't want your kind here, you have to leave. And I was there to ask whether I should be in AP chemistry. My father, who's in his 70s, was assaulted by his neighbor, punched in the face and called, uh, you know, you look like you're from ISIS. Someone like came up to me, he's like, he's like, like what, what are you looking at, towel head? When people looked at me, they looked at the hijab before they looked at anything. I actually was um, shot at by somebody who was in their pickup truck. They see the way we look, they see the way we dress, um, and they often want an apology. Now, a lot of listeners may not know this, but Sikhs are often confused with Muslims because Sikh men wear turbans as a symbol of faith. Many different groups around the world wear head coverings as well. But here in the United States, more often than not, people assume that anyone wearing a certain head covering is Muslim. Yeah, ridiculous. I know. So within his town in Arizona, Balbir began experiencing increased harassment. Fellow Sikhs in his community had similar experiences, including his younger brother named Rana. So Balbir and Rana started meeting with local Sikh leaders. Their plan? A local news conference on Sunday, September 16th. Here they hoped to teach the community about Sikhi and therefore minimize the increased discrimination in the area. And I said, I want to point out that I don't think Balbir and Rana were trying to prove their innocence by throwing Islam or Muslims under the bus. They just wanted to clarify and explain their religion and their identity. Yeah, and I actually didn't read it that way as you were describing it. And, you know, I think that it makes sense. I think all of us, after anybody that was quote-unquote different after 9-11, was doing what they could to educate people that didn't know about their faith or their culture or whatever. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised by this uh, whatsoever. And I don't take any offense, you know, that the Sikh community wanted to to do this. But, you know, something that did stand out, Sadia, was that you mentioned that the news conference was going to be on the 16th, but I think Balber was murdered on the 15th, right? 
Right, and that brings us to date on the day of the murder. On Saturday, September 15th, Balbir went to his gas station, like usual. At some point in the day, Balbir went outside to help his landscaper plant flowers out front. This is where he was when Frank drove by and shot him, killing him within seconds. So Sadia, what happens after the murder then? After killing Balbir and shooting at other folks, he goes to another local bar. He expresses no remorse and he makes no attempt to evade notice. So of course, later that evening, police arrest Frank at his home. He doesn't struggle or resist arrest too much. But on his way out the door, he says, and I quote, I'm a patriot and an American. I'm American. I'm a damn American. And well, as if that gives him the right to do what he did, right? Like exactly. That, that I said, was... What the actual fuck? The case is tried in court nearly two years later on September 2nd, 2003. And get this, Frank and his defense claim that Frank has undiagnosed and untreated mental illnesses. Oh, your favorite. Yep. Here we go again, Asad. They use this alleged mental illness to suggest that Frank is not fully responsible because 9-11 triggered an uncontrollable reaction from him. I, I get why they're arguing this, but I, I don't I don't understand it. But yeah, go ahead. I said this happens so many times, right? This is the guilty but insane defense, which we've seen more than a few times on previous Invisible Hate episodes. Totally. But a lot of the time, these insanity pleas just don't hold water. So at first, it seems like the court decides this insanity plea isn't valid. Thank God for that. The jury convicts Frank of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and drive-by shooting. Mm, makes sense. For all of these charges, the court even gives Frank the death penalty at first. But the insanity plea actually comes into play again a few years later in 2006. The Arizona Supreme Court waives the death penalty and gives Frank life in prison without parole instead. Oh, I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's not that they think he was completely insane, but they do find that Frank has a lower than average IQ. And my question is, Asad, if you have lower than average IQ, it's okay for you to shoot people and kill them? <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's a great point. And you have to remember how many people in America probably have a lower than average IQ. Well, by statistics, half of Americans have a lower than average IQ, right? And so, oh, wow. <laughs> um, and half of Americans did not commit a murder after 9-11, right? Exactly. Now, apparently there's also evidence that does in fact suggest that Frank has some form of mental disorder. And I would be very, very interested in knowing more about this, but we couldn't find more information on it. So professionals generally agree that Frank's low IQ and possible mental disorder are somewhat responsible for the murder. But to be honest, I said, I don't buy this at all. Mm. 
It's interesting. I I mean, this is definitely changing the way that I feel. Do we have any words from Frank regarding this mental disorder the court claims he has? Yes. Actually, we have a chance to hear this argument in Frank's own words as he has actually explained the situation to none other than Rana Singh Sodhi, Balbir's brother. In 2016, Rana called Frank on the phone to speak to him about Balbir. Frank, uh, uh, I, I'm hearing you. I'm so thankful and what you say. And, and the first time I'm, I'm hearing from you, to you regret and you feel sorry. This was in September 2016, which means it was almost 15 years to the day of Balbir's murder. In general, it was a pretty difficult time for Rana. Despite the work he'd done to fight racial injustice, prejudice seemed to be getting worse. Now keep in mind that 2016 was a presidential election year in America. Trump would be on the ballot by November. And for months, his campaign had been full of dog whistle politics and crude language. I will build a great, great wall. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Yeah, we know that really well. Exactly. You know, Sally, I think this is just like another example of when politicians use really horrible language. It has real world consequences, right? And we've, again, we're seeing that happening in the headlines in the last couple of weeks and what's happening around the world in the Middle East. We saw it after 9-11 and clearly we saw it, you know, after Trump and or during Trump or even now because of Trump. It's horrible and especially people in power need to be careful with, you know, how they phrase things and how they say things and, and the implications. You're absolutely right, Asad. We see a lot of hatred and dehumanization, which existed before Trump. It existed in the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, and obviously it was amplified after Trump. And this is why we need widespread, accurate representation, right? Now, imagine, Asad, if terror attacks are the only time Americans are seeing brown men in turbans, they start building prejudice against all people who look like that. Mm -hmm. And this hasn't really gone away in the decades since 9-11. I sometimes feel it's gotten worse. And I'm sure Rana was feeling much of the same frustration many of us were feeling during that time. If I were in his position, I really don't know if I would even want to hear the name of my brother's murderer. Nevertheless, speak to him. I don't know why he decided to do that. So he basically reached out to a family friend who was also a journalist. Together, they called the prison where Frank was serving time and he spoke to him. Hello, is this Frank? Yes, this is. I'm so grateful that you agree. You said yes to talking to us. Thank you so much. Okay. Initially, Frank just seems to offer some form of explanation. Uh, I've always told the truth about what happened to me, which caused me uh, to do what happened to, to your loved one. What happened is that events of 9-11 so broke me down as a man that I I could not control what happened. You, I just want you 
But listen closely, listeners. It doesn't really sound like Frank accepts responsibility for his actions. I would have never have done what happened of my own free will. What happened was a result of a mental breakdown over the events of that 9-11. It was on every TV. I tried to get away from it. I couldn't. And after seeing that over and over, it took its toll on me more than more so than the normal average person. Yeah, you know, Sadia, I think you're right when you say that it doesn't sound like he fully accepts the responsibilities for his actions. He, you know, he's referring to, I'm sorry about what happened to your brother, not what he did, as if Balber's murder just kind of like, you know, was something that happened and was just not his responsibility. And so, yeah, it's really interesting. You're absolutely right, Asad. And then he kind of equates Balbir's death to those who died in the towers, but also repeatedly apologizes, right? I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want you to know from my heart, I say this to you. I'm sorry for what I did to your brother. I am very sorry. But the surprising thing is that the conversation ends well, Frank even requests that Rana and family visit him in prison so that they can continue talking. But Frank clearly believes that his actions on September 15th, 2001 were the result of some semi-insanity, which is complete bullshit to me. And the courts seem to believe this too, to some degree. Yes, Ali, this is all really interesting to me in the fact that you know, this conversation happened. I'm actually glad that it did. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to discuss our question of the hour. Was this and should this be considered a hate crime? This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sally, the question of the hour, as we always talk about, should this have been considered a hate crime? I said, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I I am uh, no doubt that this is considered a hate crime. I think, you know, to go back to the story that we talked about at the beginning of the hour, the young um, Palestinian child that was killed, like if 9-11 didn't happen, I don't think Balbar Singh Sodhi would have been killed, right? You're right. He was targeted specifically because of the way that he looked, because he looked, quote unquote, Muslim or other or, quote unquote, towel head. And so regardless of, I think, Frank's state of mind, I think this is clearly a hate crime. And even, you know, me learning about this, you know, I probably read about it you know, when it happened or shortly thereafter and have forgotten about it after whatever, 20 plus years to hear it again. It's so disappointing in terms of its randomness and the fact that. It just happened. And then obviously there were two other victims as well. Just just a heinous. I, I think this is probably one of the worst ones just because of when it happened and how it happened. And yeah. How about you? I agree with you, Asad. And it's a grim reminder of how a lot of us are losing humanity and how we see other people and we think it's okay to hurt them because somehow someone who looks like them may have hurt somebody that looks like us and that's the sad part and we're seeing it play out again and again in American society and the only thing I can say is let's take a pause let's take a deep breath 
and let's try to connect with our basic, basic humanity. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. One other thing I just wanted to say is just like, even if in some weird world, Balber was somehow connected to what happened on 9-11, I still wouldn't want Frank to take justice into his own hands, right? You're right. Which is what what he thought his right to do as an American, as, you know, a white man. And it's just this, you know, vigilante justice that we see across the world, um, not just in America, that really kind of makes me sick to my stomach. So anyway, where is Frank these days? So Frank died in prison in May of 2022 at around 63 years old. And as for Rana Singh Sodhi, he is still working to honor his brother and fight against injustice. It's been an uphill battle for sure, because while many people mourn Balbir's case, not everyone has been empathetic, Asad. Hmm. Like, on the one hand, the state of Arizona has a 9-11 memorial and Balbir's name is included in the memorial as a victim of 9-11, but in 2011, the Arizona legislature actually tried passing a bill to remove his name from the memorial. Plenty of people no longer considered Balbir a victim of 9-11. Oh my God, that is outrageous. How sad is that? That is unbelievable. But the good news is, in the end, the governor of Arizona vetoed this bill, which is great. That's great news. <laughs> Just uh, seems like a ridiculous political thing to to happen. So Sadia, how can people help? They can help in many ways. The Sikh Coalition is one great source to look into if you want to learn more about Sikhs and support the Sikh community. I actually got the chance to speak to the current director of the Sikh Coalition a while ago for Immigrant Lee. So if you want to check out that episode, you can look it up. Awesome. For anyone unfamiliar, the Sikh Coalition works to destigmatize Sikhs in any or every sector, including education, media, and law. On their website, you can educate yourself on a frequently misrepresented religion and even donate to their cause. That is something I will definitely go and check out. Thanks for sharing that, Sadia. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. And with that, we're at the end. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, check out all the stuff that we have in the show notes. And then also, please email us your thoughts. We'd love to know your thoughts on this case or any other case that you think that we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. You're right, Asad. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Heat is a joint production of Refilion Media and Immigrantly. We would like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Emmanuel Monahan, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until next time, I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. Take care.